0: Good Sunday morning, this is the Arts Section, I'm your host Gary Zydek, welcome to WDCB's Arts & Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll catch up with renowned saxophonist and MacArthur Fellow, Miguel zenon We'll discuss his new album and an upcoming performance at the Chicago Jazz Fest. The Dueling Critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel, will join me to review a new bioplay about trailblazing poet and activist Langston Hughes, and we'll look back at the life and career of multi-instrumentalist Joey DeFrancesco, who passed away this week. While that's coming up, thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. Saxophonist and composer Miguel Zanon has always taken inspiration from his roots, often creating music influenced by his native Puerto Rico. His new album, Musica de las Americas, continues in that vein, but with an even broader scope. Zanon presents eight new compositions born out of the MacArthur Fellows' passion for history especially as it relates to Latin America. Zanon will be performing at the upcoming Chicago Jazz Festival Saturday, September 3rd. I caught up with the New York City resident on the day his new album dropped to talk about his creative process. What was the initial inspiration for what turned into this new album, Musica de las Americas?
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, the initial inspiration was a little more conceptual than a practical thing. Um, This is something that I've been thinking about for a while. Being from Latin America originally, but having spent a lot of time in this country and having traveled kind of like around the world playing music and all that stuff. And thinking about what it means to be from this part of the world and how this part of the world became what it is, you know, uh, over the past 500 years and, and change. So this is something that I've been thinking about for a while, just, just as an idea. And as I started kind of digging over the pandemic, because we all had a lot of time you know, to stuff like this, uh, digging into, into information and literature and stuff like that, I just started running into things that seemed really interesting. And from there, that kind of translated into, you know, starting to put down ideas that were more musical in nature, but inspired by this, by this. Those ideas are more historical, anthropological, etc. And then the whole project kind of built that way. You know, it's kind of just building on on this interest to know more about the history of this part of the world and how it came to
0: be. Is that something you've always been interested in or has it gradually evolved um, as you've gotten older?
1: I've always been interested in, 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 in it, uh, you know... Sort of like in a, in a more vague and non-specific way, but this is something that I would say over the last decade or so, I became more interested in just understanding more of, of the idea and, and getting more of a, gra- of a grasp of, of the information that's out there. I mean, for me, a lot of this is is more of a personal thing, you know. I mean, they sometimes. This type of things turn, turn into projects and sometimes they don't. You know sometimes I just go seek out the information and I learned a lot and then I just kind of move on. But in this case, it just kind of seemed like it would it would serve as a good platform you know, for something musical.
0: Hey, you were talking about over the pandemic, you spent some time doing some reading and research and i know probably as an artist it's hard for you maybe to describe but how does when you start digging into something like this the topic of the, the history of the americas how does that research translate into your your compositions when you're sitting down to to write the music
1: yeah yeah no, no that's that's a great question and i and i feel that's really that's that, that's actually my job <laughs> as a as a as a musician composer or whatever uh, producer in this case is to try to find ways to translate this information which in this case the source of the project is non, non-musical right so finding ways to do that that's that's sort of the challenge and the job um, in some instances which is not as often as other things but in some instances it's, it's, it's sort of like something that's reflecting an impression or a mood you know like if if you're reading about an idea and you're thinking about what that the kind of you know, the kind of impression that leaves and how, or how it makes you feel, then you're going to write something that reflects that in a more programmatic way, you know, like, uh, you know, something that you're trying to portray a certain amount of energy, a certain amount of, of friction or, or or lightness or darkness or, you know, so you can, you can do that with music, you know, with harmony and, and tempo and rhythm and melody. But sometimes the translation is it's a little more direct, more often than not, actually, in this case, and, 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 and for me in general, so finding ways, for example, to turn a phrase or a, you know a word, or you know if you if you're looking into like as I was with some of the compositions, you know I was thinking, I was looking into things that had to do with with constellations and things like that, and you'll find ways to translate translate that into maybe numerical figures, and then from there turn them into. Melodies or chords and, and, and things. So those translations are, are more literal to me, and uh, and to be honest, a little more a little more fun. They feel a little more direct and more connected to the source.
0: As far as something maybe a little more direct, I was reading about the uh, the composition. Imperios, uh, which is empires, and you were transcribing music that's connected to Aztec descendants.
1: Yeah, yeah. So in that case, exactly. I mean, I was interested in, in this idea of of this this amazing empires, like right? the Aztecs and the Incas and the Mayans, and and the the incredible advancements they were able to achieve way before the encounter with with Europe, right? And of course, I mean, we don't we don't really know what what these people were like. We can just kind of you know it's, it's all based on, on the things that we have available now but there are still some things floating around musically and culturally that that connect to those civilizations and groups specifically so i was sticking on and found this this recording with this melody that i really really liked and it kind of caught my eye and it just it was kind of exactly what i was looking for you know so i kind of extracted that like a little bit of that melody i think it was probably like four bar. Just kind of developed a, a theme based on that, that like the melodic uh, motif, and sort of built the composition around that theme, and and other things too. I mean, there's a, there's a rhythmic element to the composition that's semi-complex, and other things. But it was really all coming out of this melody that, I, like you said, I I just I, I extracted just by doing a little research and finding finding something that spoke to
0: me. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with celebrated saxophonist Miguel Zanon about his new album, Musica de las Americas. Another tune that I'm, I'm curious about is one called the Venice Abiertas. What inspired this one?
1: So, Venas Abiertas is, is sort of inspired by, by a book called Venas Abiertas de América Latina, which means The Open Veins of Latin America. It was written written in the 70s by a, a, a writer from Uruguay. His name is Eduardo Galeano. He's actually still around. Um, and the book at his time, and even, even now, was really revolutionary because it really kind of broke down how for many generations, the, the resources of Latin America have, have been exploited by some of the, some of the some of the higher powers in the world and how part of the world that's so rich in resources has become so poor and in, 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 in sort of like a, in, the, in the more direct sense of the world, the financial sense of the world. And uh, I was reading through the book and, and just kind of like really being inspired by the research, but also inspired by the idea of this continent's really having all these different identities and all these different ways that you could kind of look at the continent, look at the South and the North and Central America and the Caribbean and all these different characters. So when I wrote this piece, it was sort of half trying to portray the sort of darker and, you know, pretty heavy energy from the book using, you know, some of the harmony and some of the voicings in the piano There's kind of like a polytonal, quality to to the composition. But also, I was trying to write, uh, find a melody that felt lyrical against this, this sort of denser harmonic material. And uh, usually, when I'm trying to do that, one of the devices that I like to use as a composer is I I like to write lyrics. Uh, So I wrote basically I wrote a song with lyrics, which you'll never hear (laughs) 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 hear, really. Uh, But this helps me sort of build a, a melodic material that's a little more lyrical and, and has more of a vocal quality. So the melodies that I play on the saxophone actually something that I wrote with lyrics sort of based on ideas from the book and talking about some of the messages that I got from reading the book. And then eventually I, I spread those lyrics down and just kind of built a melodic material against the harmonic framework, and that's kind of how the, uh, how the piece came
0: together. That's interesting. So for something like this, this album, which obviously you've put so much thought into it, and listeners are going to, everyone's going to have their own interpretation, but do you have hopes for what people who sit down with this take away?
1: You know, not really. I mean, a lot of times when I'm putting projects together, the process is very similar to this. You know, it's a, it's a long process, a lot of research and a lot of,
2: you know, gather of
1: information, extracting elements and then constructing pieces. And, I mean, there's a lot that goes through into it but i feel that that process is more for me as a, as a composer producer creator you know i don't I, I wouldn't want to impose the weight of that process into a listener because i feel like ultimately the listener should get what they want to get out of the project i feel like the process is, is more for me to put it together and for me to have that perspective but to be honest, what I would hope is that, that when folks listen to this music, they kind of get their own thing out of it, you know, their own message, or they, they, they gather what they want to gather just out of that, out their own personal impression.
0: You'll be performing on the main stage at the upcoming Chicago Jazz Fest on Saturday, September 3rd. Will you uh, be performing music from this album?
1: Yeah, yeah we'll be performing music exclusively from this album, and we're very, very excited about it, actually, Uh Uh, We've gotten to play at the festival a few times over the years, and it's really one of our favorite places to play, and Chicago is one of our favorite places to visit for many, many reasons. So uh, we're super excited, yeah, super excited, and also excited to to play this music there.
0: Any uh, favorite Chicago stories from your years of coming here?
1: (laughs) I love the city, you know, I mean, it, it it's, it's very similar to New York where I live. I feel like it has the same type of energy. There's a huge and very powerful and historic Puerto Rican community in Chicago, in the Humboldt Park area. And, and I have a lot of friends there, so I always feel connected to a city that way also. Like I said, I've visited Chicago many times to play at the, at the festival, but also to play at the Jazz Showcase, which is our... our usual Chicago home. And yeah, you know, I feel like over the years playing there for over twenty years as a leader and as a as a side man, I've built so many good relationships and have have so many friends and colleagues there. Um that it's uh it always feels like home over there.
0: That saxophone is Miguel zanon His new album Musica de las Americas just came out. It's available Everywhere you can find jazz music, and Miguel will be performing music from the album during his concert at this year's Chicago Jazz Fest. He'll be on the main stage Saturday, September 3rd in the evening. You can find more information at miguelzanan.com. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the Arts Section every week, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartssection.org. And you are listening to The Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the Dueling Critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning.
3: Good morning, Good Gary. Good morning, Gary.
0: It's been a while since we talked about a Black Ensemble Theater production. The Northside Company is known for its original musical productions that often pay tribute to great African-American artists and performers. In that last pre-pandemic season of 2019, I believe the company presented productions celebrating legends Mahalia Jackson and Lena Horne, as well as a musical paying homage to funk music. Black Ensemble's latest production puts the spotlight on legendary poet, playwright, and activist Langston Hughes. And the company's associate director, Ruben Eccles, wrote and directs my brother Langston. Jonathan, we'll start with you. What were your initial impressions?
2: I liked what I saw on stage, but I was a bit disappointed with the 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 vehicle itself, the writing, the written piece. To begin with, I will tell you that I was surprised to find popular songs of the twenties, thirties, and forties in the show, and they seem to be shoehorned into a play about what I thought was going to be a play about Langston Hughes, you know, the great writer, as you said, an activist who emerged from the Harlem Renaissance. But, you know, I didn't mind songs because they were well-played, they were well-sung, energetic, and they helped set the scenes. But I was also more surprised not to hear any of Langston Hughes's own music since he was a composer and even more so a noted lyricist. And all the songs they used, there were, I believe, seven or eight of them were not songs that he had written. I was a bit more confounded, even, uh, that this new piece by Reuben D. Eccles, as you noted, Gary, completely ignores the long and very strong connections that Langston Hughes had with Chicago. His life and work actually are quite different. Well known, fairly well known, but not so much the importance of uh, his the importance of his connections to the Windy City, which I assumed would have been a major part of my brother Langston, and really it could have offered perspectives on his life and work that would have been in particular interest to Chicago audiences. Carrie,
3: what was your take? Yeah, I, I largely agree. You know, I think that this is a play that in many ways is structured as kind of a building's role, and it's about the influences on the young Langston Hughes uh, from his growing up, in a variety of Midwestern times, towns, but most notably Joplin, Missouri, I believe is where he spent a lot of his time, and his kind of, his passage to the Harlem Renaissance and and what that career as a poet, and as you said, activist and, and, and uh, novelist meant in his life. And we see so much of it coming really from his wrestling with faith. I think that's the through line that Eccles is trying to work through the entire play. Um, early on, he, he, his mother and father are kind of separated. He's mostly raised by his beloved Nana, who is very active in the Church. And although he finds some comfort in the Church, he does not really find himself to be a person of faith. He believes there might be a greater force, but he doesn't find it in organized religion. And he returns to that theme several times in the play as he as he goes to Harlem, as he hears Lady Day, you know, performing uh, the songs that you referenced, Jonathan, when he meets Zora Neale when he has an encounter, and a, a brief, I don't know how brief it is, although I, I felt it was handled a little gingerly, a relationship with uh, poet County Cullen. These are all interesting biographical details, but I wasn't really sure that it built up to an understanding of who Langston Hughes is when we meet him, and who he ends up being at the end. And of course, this does not go through his whole life. It's primarily his younger, you know, his younger years. So, yeah, I, I found myself somewhat frustrated. Yet at the same time, when we hear the poem by Hughes, and of course, his most famous is the one that asks what happens to a dream deferred and eventually, you know, provided the title for Marian Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun, I'm reminded of how fresh and very incisive a voice he provided. And I think that the show does hit on some really good issues about what it meant to be an artist at that time and indeed what it means to be a black artist today. I, I thought that the whole, I don't know how you felt about it, Jonathan, but I thought the conflict between him and Zora Neale Hurston over their let's call it racist, white, you know, patron who is willing to pay the bills and support them as long as they write the sorts of things she wants to see, felt really strong. And I wanted to see, you know, more of those tensions played out. But it sometimes feels in the script to me that when they start approaching those, there's a tendency to kind of back off or shy away a little.
2: Well, I, you know, I, I agree with you about the, the richness and profundity of his poetry, Uh, We are treated in the show to—it runs about 90 minutes. We are treated to 10 of Langston Hughes' poems, along with poems by County Cullen, Paul, Lawrence Dunbar, and even Walt Whitman. And these poems really are the heart and soul of my brother Langston. Um, The piece runs about 90 minutes, as I said. It's narrated by Langston Hughes himself very nicely portrayed uh, appealingly by Chris Taylor, and it chiefly focuses, as you said, Carrie, on Langston's Midwestern boyhood and early adult years in 1920s New York City. Crucially, we also meet his younger stepbrother. When his mother remarried, he acquired a teenage stepmother named Gwynne, with whom Langston was close, it appears, or at least for a while. The play's title, My Brother Langston, refers to this relationship's Specifically, in addition to the broader black honorific of brother, the problem is we never learn how this relationship played out mm-hmm. beyond the 1920s. It's as if Ruben echoes in writing the work said, "Well, I'm going to end it. You know, we'll go through the 20s." and then we'll stop, and we'll just ignore the last 35 years of Langston Hughes' life and careers. If is going to be the focus of the work, that is, the brother and the stepbrother, Langston and the stepbrother Gwynne, then we need to learn more about, uh, especially about the stepbrother and about the ongoing nature of the relationship,
3: right? I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I think that that's also, you know, there's an interesting conflict not just between the people in the Harlem Renaissance, the conflicts we see with, as I mentioned, Hurston and Hughes, but this whole idea that there, that the Harlem Renaissance was, you know, part of the Great Migration, but it was also, as is so often the case with bohemian and artistic communities, people who are moving away from their families, maybe moving away from their faith, moving away in some, in some really profound way from the from where their roots were and creating you know new families of affinity and I think you're absolutely right Jonathan if we'd seen more about where Gwyn fits into all of this you know he's clearly you know loves his brother is very proud of him um, and Langston yeah when the time we see them together he clearly has a good relationship with Gwyn but what what why isn't he responding to him what is what is going on in his life that makes him feel Seemingly makes him feel that as he grows as an artist, he has to kind of keep some of these previous relationships at a bit of arm's length. That's potentially some really strong stuff, um, but as you said, it's just not really played out. And I don't know if that's just out of you know trying to keep the material to 90 minutes, if it was you know just something that Eccles felt was kind of an interesting way into the story without really figuring out how to resolve that relationship, there feels like a, l- a lack of resolution in many ways in this show. Yeah. That yeah, said, absolutely. I will say that I enjoyed the 90 Minutes. I enjoyed being reminded of the power of uses Hughes' poetry, and it's a very appealing cast. So
2: I think instead of maybe exploring the, that relationship more deeply, uh, and, and who knows, maybe the, the biographical sources and information simply isn't available, I don't know, True. We don't know how much research uh, and, and homework was done in preparing this piece, but I felt that my brother Langston takes the same path as other biographical shows have done at the Black Ensemble, which is the path of how Langston was denied and exploited by a white dominant world, even the world of the arts. I do not, certainly do not deny the racism he faced, but I think it's too easy to take this path especially as Langston's talent as a writer allowed him eventually to triumph in the world of white-dominated theater and the world of poetry, as well as his tremendous importance and influence to the black community. You mentioned Reuben Eccles also directed My Brother Langston, and I agree with you, Kerry. He's assembled a talented cast, an engaging cast, engaging players. Uh, And as You know, to accompany the songs, as there always is at the Black Ensemble, there's a really cooking little band for the musical numbers. I have no complaints at all about the company or the staging. My disappointment is only that this could have been a deeper journey into Langston's life and career, especially his important work in theater, which the show virtually completely ignores, and also his special Chicago Connections.
3: Right. I was thinking that one of the first things by Langston Hughes I read, aside from his poetry, when I was in college, I read his first novel, 1930s yeah. Not Without Laughter, which is pretty autobiographical. When you were talking about the, you know, the racism he faced from, you know, the white patroness, obviously being the one who's most present in the show, but that novel was the first one I can remember reading that introduced the concept of colorism within the black community, and I think that's also something. Uh, I mean, obviously, this thing could go on for, you know, 90 hours if you wanted to count all the, all the stories about Langston Hughes. But I mean, it's, I think that speaks to the idea that, you know, that Langston Hughes did have, a, in his own writing, some very nuanced and very interesting ways of looking at the various ways that oppressions can be internalized. Uh, we certainly see a little about, of that with uh, County Cullen. And I, I, that's something else that I think would be great to know more about. You know, how much did he get into this gay identity? Or at least his relationships, in, you know, affect the way that he approached uh, the world. Um, yeah. It's suggested here, and then they kind of back away from it a little bit. And I don't know if that's just out of, you know, a sense that they don't want to, you know, uh, feel like they're dealing in the, you know, uh, salacious. Uh, we certainly see, as played by Andre, Andre Teamer, Pounty um, Cullen, who ends up marrying a woman, kind of letting it be known that he cannot, that he does not feel that he can go on you know, at, at risk of being, you know, outed. And certainly, that's an interesting, you know, aspect. And it's hard enough, you know, hard as it would be to be a black artist in the 1920s. How much harder is it if if you're a black gay artist or at that time? So
2: let me add a note, since I've referred a couple of times to Langston Hughes' uh, very, very strong and important Chicago connections. Maybe I should just briefly spell, the, spell them yeah. out. sure. Um, in addition to his poetry, his, his, his music, his novels, and so forth, he also, Langston Hughes, was an important dramatist. And he wrote several works that appeared on Broadway, but he wrote a greater number of plays, uh, many of them one-act plays, uh, specific to the nation's black urban communities. And these were done extensively and widely across the country by black theater companies, in, uh, in the major center population centers that had significant black populations. And Chicago was one of them. And indeed, his plays were frequently done here. He was involved, he was one of the co-founders of the Skyloft Players, which was one of Chicago's most important and longest-running African-American theater companies in this city. And even people like the current Chicago director, Chuck Smith, a longtime associate artist mm-hmm. of the Goodman Theater, His first introduction to theater was plays at the Skyloft Players, and the Langston Hughes was important there. He was associated with the uh, Federal Theater Project in Chicago and its uh, so-called Negro unit, writing plays, directing, working with them. And then also for 20 years, from the early 40s to the early 60s, he wrote a regular column for the Chicago Daily Defender, uh, arguably the most important uh, black newspaper in the country during that period of time, and I just felt that that they were missing missing the boat by not right. bringing in and, some of these. Uh, and
3: you know, it's interesting because I don't think these. a lot of these plays are produced. I mean, I think the one that I've seen probably most. Consistently, is his Black Nativity, which is a very popular which piece, was, and is often. Which was his last piece on Broadway right. two years before he died, yeah. Right, and I know Congo Square did, I think, their own version of it for several years, and I know I've seen yep. that and I've seen it elsewhere. Uh, so, but you know, to sum up for me, I think it's well worth seeing, particularly if you don't know a lot about Langston Hughes. It will certainly whet your appetite to, uh, to find out more, uh, but I agree with you that it does seem to fall into the trap that sometimes is there for the Black Ensemble. Uh, formula shall we say um and uh i, I just wish it pushed a little bit more on some of these really interesting buttons that are kind of present in the in the narrative
0: <laughs> black ensemble theaters my brother langston continues through september 18th and if you're just tuning in you're listening to the arts section my name is gary Zedik. i'm here with the dueling critics carrie reed and jonathan abarbanel we're getting into some local theater news this sunday morning We've talked a lot about leadership changes, both artistic and administrative, in the Chicago theater community over the past two-plus years. It's gotten to the point where uh, I'm not sure there's many big changes that can be made, but earlier this week, Chicago Shakespeare Theater announced that its longtime executive director, Chris Henderson, will be stepping down at the end of the year. And it can't be a complete shocker when someone who's held a position for over 30 years decides to step down. But Carrie, this announcement is somewhat surprising given that Chicago Shakespeare is in the process of naming a new artistic director.
3: Right, right. You know, I think it's interesting because I, I, I think it's important to realize that executive directors and uh, artistic directors often spend a lot of time together at the same institution. They are often matched sets. I for one was surprised that Rock Schulfer, who's the uh, executive director at the Goodman, did not announce that he was leaving even though Bob falses is apparently he is staying on. That's how closely aligned you tend to think of people uh, in these positions. So I think I was wondering if Chris Henderson would decide to stay, stay on um, but he's actually leaving at the end of 22 tw- of this uh, sorry at this year, whereas Barbara Gaines, who had announced earlier will be staying on sometime into mid 2023. No replacement has been named for either of them, but they definitely have been, you know, a very strong working team. You know, I'm also thinking about, you know, part of the conflict apparently that uh, broke out again at Victory Gardens a couple months ago was that they had not hired a full time executive director to work with then artistic director Ken Matt Martin. So I think all of this speaks to the idea although we, we tend to think of the artistic director more as the, the real public facing Visionaries, you know, for companies in the in the traditional kind of model, um, they often have these very strong uh, symbiotic relationships with executive directors that help them move uh, theaters forward. And Jonathan, I'll let you jump in with how much you know. Chris Henderson has been responsible for everything Chicago Shakespeare has done in the 33 years, because I think he's seen even more of it than I have. <laughs> so. well,
2: it, it, it proves, you know, Barbara Gaines, uh, is the founding artistic director of Sh- Chicago Shakespeare Theater. And uh, Chris Henderson was not there quite at the beginning, but he arrived a few years later. He's been there 33 years. Mm-hmm. And it proves, you know, the old saying that behind every great woman, there is a great man. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and and this is a perfect example. Not only has he uh, been uh, significantly responsible For the tremendous growth and development and international prestige of Chicago Shakespeare Theater. But Chris also has been a tremendously effective and important player in Chicago Theater as a whole through his long service on the board of the League of Chicago Theaters and the League of Chicago Theaters Foundation, and nationally in his work with the Theater Communications Group, which is one of the important organizations of, uh, you know, not profit not-for-profit theaters across the country. He is an important figure. He is uh, uh, modest about his accomplishments um, and generally self-effacing, good guy to talk to, easy to talk to, and uh, has had a, just a most productive and distinguished career here.
3: Right. I would. I mean, among the accomplishments, obviously, the move to Navy Pier, then the expansion a few years ago with the Yard, the Shakespeare 400 uh, from a few seasons ago, where they did every play by Shakespeare for the honor of his 400th birthday. Um, and I think one of the things I've always appreciated about Chicago Shakespeare is their world stage series, which kind of picked up... Uh, where the the now long defunct uh, Chicago International Theater Festival left off, they really brought not just Chicago Shakespeare to other countries, particularly having relationships in England, but they brought so many international artists. And not just you know, not just your your Brits, but also uh, companies from Africa, companies from France, companies from South America, uh, companies from all over, as I can recall, um, who are coming in to either do their versions of Shakespeare or of other works, and I think that that's been a really exciting um, and laudable uh, focus for for Chicago Shakes that both, again I know that that's a shared again, we're talking shared visions of people um, and I think that that doesn't happen without Barbara Gaines and Chris Henderson being in absolute agreement that, you know, this may be difficult. And I know there were some years, depending on how visas were going, depending on the <laughs> international situation where it could be quite difficult, but they, they remained focused on that. And that's such a rich thing for Chicago theater audiences to be able to have that, you know, right at their doorstep. So Yes.
2: And Barbara Gaines and Chris Henderson, you have, you have two pairs of very big <laughs> shoes to fill uh, at Navy Pier.
0: We'll see if there's another domino that will be falling soon.
3: Well, you know, Jonathan, I'd be happy for you to be the man standing behind me. Could we (laughs) maybe put our hats in the ring and see what happens there? (laughs) Behind behind every great thing, there's
0: an old (laughs) great. No, no, no. Okay, Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much.
3: Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you.
0: You're tuned in to WDCB, this is the Arts Section, I'm Gary Zydek. Renowned jazz musician Joey DeFrancesco passed away at the age of 51 this past Thursday. His wife Gloria DeFrancesco confirmed his death on social media. A master organist, DeFrancesco is often credited with bringing the sound of the Hammond B3 back into the jazz mainstream. The Philadelphia native was a straight-up prodigy, playing his first professional gig at age 10 and signing a Record deal with Columbia at 16. I recently checked in with Oregon music aficionado and host of Jazz Organic, which airs right here on WDCB Wednesday nights, Andy Schultz, to talk about DeFrancesco's legacy. What comes to mind when you think about Joey DeFrancesco on the, the B3?
4: He is the one that I would say brought it back. So the heyday of the Hammond organ uh, would probably start with Jimmy Smith, mid to late 50s. And the heyday, I guess, would probably be the 60s, going to the very early 70s, where you had uh, Jimmy McGriff and Jack McDuff and Groove Holmes and these guys that that put out these organ records that people loved. They saw these guys in concert, um, but that music that those guys recorded, it just it found its way out of the public spotlight, uh, probably mid to late 70s. And into the 80s, but in the 80s there's this rebirth in jazz, and in that rebirth comes this kid, Joey DeFrancesco. He's just 14, 15 years old or so, and he is he's he's already recording. I think he had his first recording with Columbia in the late 80s, and uh, actually there's an album called All of Me, uh, just showcasing a teenage, you know, he's a phenom, right? He's he's just he comes out of nowhere. Well, comes from Philadelphia, and he had, at one point he was mentored by Jimmy Smith and. But he was on his way. His dad was an organist. And so the guy, in his talent, in his ability, brought out from the ashes, I guess, the organ as a lead instrument in jazz again, something that had probably been out of favor for the last, you know, at that point, 10 to to 15 years. And by doing so, he rebirthed that genre of music and took it well beyond where it already was. And out of that, birthed a whole new generation of jazz organists so that where we stand today, you have many, many, many players around the world, mind you, that can look back and trace and say, Joey D was what I was listening to. We can all say Jimmy Smith was, you know, sort of this grandfather of the instrument in jazz, but Joey D for the generation today was the connecting piece from the old to the new. And so to hear of his passing at only 51 years old is sad because not only was he at the height of his career now and creating something new, but now, you know, now this is a time for the next generation to sort of grab the baton. But you didn't feel like we got to even peak Joey D yet. And so that's how important he is. You know, if there's a Mount Rushmore, he's obviously on it for the organ and Jazz. Um, but he was truly the one who I think pulled it out from the ashes, at least in the, the late 80s into the 90s.
0: Right. And I was talking to someone here at the station about how, you know, I've worked here for a while. And even before that, I listened to the station. So I feel like I, I've heard his name so long that I just, you know, in my head, I thought he was a lot older and then I, you know, I've been reading a lot about him uh, after the news came out. So he really was a, a prodigy, right?
4: Yeah. I mean, he's he told me he started playing the organ at the age of four. Um, his dad was a, a jazz organist. His dad actually has some recordings as well. Papa John Francesco. So he was in it. I mean, you know, he was in it from an early time. Uh, in his life, and he got a chance to meet Jimmy Smith, young in life, and really just—I mean, obviously—just practiced the heck out of the instrument and got to do a level of fluidity that no one has. And that's where I—that's why I think he's so important in the landscape of jazz and the Hammond organ is that his musicality—I I, I dare say—will be unparalleled. Because there was something special about his, it's not just technical. There's a lot of people that can play technically and can play fast and a lot of notes. But there's very few that combine his technical ability and the soulfulness and the musicality, but the intelligence and the artistry to create and create and keep reinventing and reinventing himself. And I would say if if there was one critique of the generation of organists, what I would call the greats, the, the guys that were around in the 60s and into the 70s, your Jimmy Smiths and your Jack McDuff's and Groove Holmes, they, probably no fault of their own, were locked into a pattern. They were locked into a sound, and, I would, and I've actually heard Joey talk about this, too, that those guys may have been dictated so much in their careers by what the A&R people, what their producers were saying were, was going to actually sell. Joey D has been separated from that. He can create on his own and create his own things, but... He has innovated over and over again, and, and if you look back to his childhood, um, there was definitely something about starting at the age of four. There was definitely special, something special about who he was, being born into that very musical family. In fact, he went to a, an arts magnet school in Philadelphia with, I think he graduated, uh, maybe not the exact year, but was right around the time of Christian McBride uh, and some others. I, I want to say... Gosh, I want to even say like Questlove yeah. uh, of the yeah. Roots fame uh, was in his in his high school as well. Yep. And so, yeah, I mean, he's he's always had these influences around him that have contributed to who he is, including being mentored by Jimmy Smith at a young age, too. So it, as far as importance, incredibly important, and obviously an incredibly good start, too. But the thing about him that's even so impressive is Joey D is not only the best organist in the world, or now as was the best organist in the world, but he actually picked up a saxophone about 10, 15 years ago and started to play our trumpet part. he started to play trumpet about 10, 15 years ago and was playing trumpet at a level that many professionals would say, that guy's a pro on the trumpet now too. And now in the last five years or so, has, I could be wrong on my times here, but basically around that time, he is also a professional level saxophonist. I mean, there's guys that play their whole life to get to the level that he is on the saxophone now after just picking it up. So, you know, for him to be able to transfer that is incredible. I mean, and I think that has to do with his start, you know, at such a young age being exposed to such a musical group uh, in his family. And so uh, he is such a remarkable person as far as the musician goes. And even as a, as a guy, like I said, I would call him a friend now over the years. We've gotten to talk many times. Uh, I've interviewed him formally uh, for W D C B But at the same time, we've also talked off the air a lot over the years. And so he will definitely be missed.
0: I read a, a quote from Christian McBride talking about Joey Francesco. And he says something to the effect of he became such a master on the organ that he it's almost like he picked up the saxophone and trumpet because he needed a, another challenge. Think it definitely
4: it. felt like that. I was following him very closely when he picked up the saxophone. And that's certainly what it felt like. He was looking for a challenge. You could say, oh, it's just raw talent. It's not. He absolutely worked his tail off on these things and wanted to be the best. And maybe it was that. Maybe maybe Christian McBride is correct. Maybe he just needed a new challenge. But he was doing it at such a high level. It was pretty incredible.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydig. I'm talking with WDCB jazz host Andy Schultz about the late, great Joey DeFrancesco, who passed away this past week. You mentioned uh, his connection with the great Jimmy Smith, and you actually, uh, in one of those interviews you had with him, you get into their relationship, and and he actually has a pretty funny story about uh, kind of the origins of of how they meet. Uh, Let's listen to a clip from your interview with Joey DeFrancesco.
4: You've probably talked many times over the years about your relationship with Jimmy Smith, Jimmy passed in 2005, but you guys overlapped many years. Can you just talk a moment about the relationship you had? I mean, obviously you grew up playing Jimmy Smith recordings and mimicking those you've been playing organ since you were four years old. Your father had one in the house and that was a big influence, but there, there obviously were some, there was a relationship here. Was it like a mentor relationship? Did he find you? Did you find him? Like, how did you get hooked up with Jimmy?
5: Well, I met him it was a club he was playing it's a funny story the way I met him and I just started telling the story in its full form as of recent and I don't always get into it cuz it's it's a it's a little long and it's also very silly and funny but it's the truth <laughs> there was a record he came out with in 1977 called Live at Jimmy Smith Supper Club yes. he had his own club right Yes on the cover there was a book of matches with two phone numbers on it We're talking 1977. It's a different time, right? So my brother dared me to call the phone number and pretend. And I was like six years old, something like that, seven years. Seven, I was seven years old at the time. My brother dared me to call and pretend I was Stanley Turntine trying to get a hold of Jimmy Smith. (laughs) So this little seven-year-old voice trying to sound like an adult (laughs) and sound hip calling. And and it was uh, answering uh, like a secretary, it was, like, directly to Jimmy's number, though, you know. And she took the message, and she probably explained to Jimmy, and Lola, Jimmy's wife, who was also his manager, this little kid called with this disguised voice, trying to sound like Stanley Tarrantine asking for Jimmy. So lo and behold, they called me back. I guess they thought it was cute or something. And I remember it was, in this, it was like, uh, in the August of 1978, and I was sleeping on the couch, and my my dad said, "Get up! Somebody's on the phone for you." <laughs> you know, and uh, he couldn't figure out how this happened. I had to explain it later. And I picked up the phone, and it was Jimmy Smith. And to me, there was no bigger star than that. That was like the ultimate thing. At seven years old, Jimmy Smith to me it was like wow. You know, and he called up, "Hey, baby, how you doing?" You know, really sweet and he was playing uh the closest he was going to play to where we lived in Philadelphia was in New York City in about a month and uh my mom and dad said, I'm going to we'll go up and bring him he said bring him up to meet me and stuff so I did i went to meet him in uh September of 1978 and he was very cool he was very nice he let me sit on the organ next to him i remember oh, wow. i played a line one of his lines back and he, whoa you know <laughs> and that was really cool and it was nice it was a little kid very uh i guess it was it made him feel good or was an astonishing kind of feeling and then as years went on we'd go see him whenever he came to philly and it was always cool and everything Uh, but when i started to really be able to play and have my own thing happening he came to philly once it was a small club he wanted to jam and we were jamming together sitting on the organ together and We were going back and forth, and I mean, and I was playing how I played, and things got a little different. He had it, he he, uh, changed the way he was (laughs) a little bit with me, I Mm. think. I think because at that point, nobody ever came close to that, yeah. So, I, you know, to be, I guess that's kind of, and I was 14 years old and I was on the case, you know, yeah. But he was still cool, but it was a little bit different. Sure, And then when my career took off, and I got a lot of attention, being 17, playing the organ, something different, something new for for the whole jazz scene, especially that was 1989 when my record came out. And uh, the 80s was a big resurgence for jazz because of Wynton Marcellus, uh, Terrence Blanchard, Donald Harrison. That's when all of that was happening. And the same gentleman that signed them, Dr. George Butler, signed me. So that was what was happening. It was like a renaissance of... New players that was necessary to spark the interest in the whole idiom again, and then the organ that was really left field, yeah, nobody was doing that except for all the cats that had already done it and they weren't doing anything different.
4: I was gonna say, I can't for the whole decade, I can't think of many. I mean, McGriff had some stuff with Hank Crawford, I think, right? Yeah, not a lot going on in the whole decade, yeah, and
5: there wasn't it wasn't inspired like the things they did in the 60s right. it just wasn't right jimmy smith played the same set for 30 years it was just yeah. they weren't they weren't pushed for some reason uh to do to take it to another level yeah. and my first record came out and of course they had the influence of all that but it was different it was a different kind of approach to playing and that had to do with all the other influences that i had you know the the Oscar Petersons and the Art Tatums and the Charlie Barker, you know, all that vocabulary. Yeah. You mix all that up in the funnel and you come out at the bottom, right? So that's what our relationship was still cool, but it, it, it affected him in a way. And and a lot of that I blame on the media too, uh, you know, because they would ask questions like, do you think, you know, Joey DeFrancesco is better than you? and you don't ask mm. a legend like that. Yeah, a yeah. Que- you don't ask anybody a question like that. Everybody does their thing, you know. So, you know, that didn't help. But it, it, little by little, I would see him. I was touring now, and I was doing the same circuits where, that he was the festivals in Europe, and I'd run into him, and he'd be really cool to me. Yeah, He was always cool to me in that way. And then uh, in 1999, I did the record Incredible, Mm-hmm. which uh, this was a big event. It was a San Francisco jazz festival. And they had Jimmy and I play opposite each other. And I said, man, we got to record this. And maybe me and Jimmy could jam at the end a couple of things. That just took money to get that happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were ready to do it, mm-hmm. you know, for a certain price. And we did that, and it was cool. And uh, ever since then, the relationship was really cool, Yeah, you know. And... Uh, Legacy came about because he moved not too far from where I was living at the time in Arizona, and we got really tight. That's when we really got tight. And uh, that record to me is really, uh, I'm proud of that record too because my goal on that record was to put him in a different place because even though he did the same type of recordings for many years, he can do anything. The guy was limitless. And he had all that out avant-garde. He had all that in his playing, too. It just never was explored. The industry latched onto this thing that they called soul jazz. Right. And it limited what these the, the, the players were... It didn't allow them to explore that way. They just did whatever they were told by the producers and the A&R, basically, for many years. Yeah. Because that worked. But it wasn't working to me anymore, and that's why... You had, you know, a decline of the interest because nothing new was happening. That's so. When I did Legacy, I'm gonna I played music that well. I wasn't gonna do, I did some of the stuff that was signature, but I played a different way, you know, and it challenged him to play it another way, and he did it no problem. Yeah, because that's what masters mm-hmm. do. In the end, our relationship was incredible. We were really good friends, and uh, he was cool. And I'm glad that that's how that... I didn't know it was the end for him. I had no idea. I mean, we were planning on touring and doing more of that. And, uh, it was great, though. Doing the gigs together, fantastic.
0: That was a clip from Andy Schultz interviewing uh, Joey DeFrancesco, I think from uh, 2019, when he performed at the uh, College of DuPage, actually, uh, for the jazz series uh, we have here at the Macinage Arts Center. So obviously, you're a fan, you're an admirer. What was it like when you when you sat down for that interview?
4: It's always hard to not be a fan, you know, when you're trying to also be an interviewer. Um, the, the 2019 clip, uh, the summer of 2019, was a long-form interview. I used some material for my show, Jazz Organic, at the time. But I wanted to really kind of dig a little deeper and kind of go beyond the soundbite-type questions. And so in that, um, he was very candid, And it was it was great because I I assumed there was a little bit of a trust that came from that, as if he knew that I was there for him. You know, I was there to to help, you know, tell his story uh, in his life to the audience of Jazz Organic and to WDCB as a whole. And I think part of that respect came from the fact that he actually as well. uh, There's not many hour long jazz organ shows that exist in the country. Um, but there are two that I can name, my own, and he actually does one for satellite radio. Okay. <laughs> and or has had done one. So I think because we had that common bond where we both were trying to do the same thing, just on different airwaves, that he uh, he, he was able to open up. And so when we talked, it, it was it was hard for me to not become just a fan and just drool all over the place and say, you're so good. You know, there was an old Saturday Night Live bit about, uh, gosh, what was the one, you know, basically – you know, the, the, just a fanboy that can't handle an interview because all yeah. you do is Chris Farley? Say, yeah, Chris yeah, Farley. Yeah, thank you. I'm but like, I'm trying to recall it. an yeah, interview
0: like right. uh, Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney. Yeah. <laughs>
4: He's like, you know, remember,
0: remember that? Do you
4: remember when you did this? That was awesome. <laughs> you know, and it was so hard to not do that um, because I do have my own favorite Joey D recordings. And I'm like, tell me a story about this. You know, I really like this. Um, but at the same time, you know, I have to interview in a way that is professional and also uh, you know, kind of digs deeper. And so what I found is that kind of the perfect combination of where I was able to ask questions that were just tell me a little bit about your creative process, Tell me a little bit about how you've gotten to some of these places in your career. Tell me about your influences, tell me about Jimmy Smith. Tell me about you know, what it was like, what it's been like later in your career as you've kind of become a leader in this field. But at the same time, was able to say, dude, you've got this video out there on YouTube that's got a million views or whatever, you know, where you play, uh, you know, this version of the song 100 Ways from James Ingram from, yeah, you know, like, tell me about that. You know, what is that like now that you're kind of living the reality of almost like a YouTube star in this day and age? You know, and so kind of ask those those questions that maybe he's just, um, you know, maybe, maybe a little less interested in answering from a fanboy like me, but uh, it's it was really it's been really good. He's been so good to talk to over the years. Um, he, he's always made time for me, which is fantastic. And uh, yeah, I've just appreciated getting those chances to share. I, I'll say this to anyone around me, and, and I because and I, I said it for years. You know, anytime he came to Chicago, I'm like, you have to go. You have to go because this could be your chance to see a living you know a living legend of an instrument, regardless of whether you think you know the organ is great or you like the organ like go see the legends it was an honor to get to talk to him it was an honor to get to visit with him when he came and so i just really appreciated getting to know him
0: and you can tell in that clip when he's telling you that story about how he met jimmy smith for the first time that he is opening up because um, not to get off track but just for our listeners benefit uh when it comes to interviews with artists i think they can tell when you've put in the work or you, you know what you're talking about. Uh, so for somebody like Joey DeFrancesco, he might have to do a bunch of interviews when he's out on the road to promote his shows, maybe with local media outlets, but those are probably pretty basic interviews. But with, you know, your conversation, obviously I think he could, Tell that this is something you you cared about and and he really seemed to engage with the the conversation and maybe tell some stories that he normally wouldn't
4: it he definitely did he he sensed that i I knew his career, I knew his catalog uh and that that definitely helps kind of open the door for a little bit more of a candid interview, which you know he did i'm I'm thankful for that summer um and and there's such a funny part of that story He tells that story about he he got Jimmy Smith's number off of a matchbook off of an album cover, which I actually have that recording on a shelf, that, that particular vinyl. Um, it's a live from, you know, from Jimmy Smith's Supper Club. And it it certainly does. Right there on the cover, there's a matchbook that has the number of the club on it. <laughs> and I've always, it's funny because he told me that story and I and that's after I had seen that phone number on that matchbook. And I always wondered if that was a real phone number. <laughs> and then he told that story to me and it's like, it's absolutely a real phone number and it's what connected him to Jimmy Smith. So, uh, pretty funny thing. That's a, that's actually an album that I don't believe is release, released digitally. Uh-huh. And so I specifically went out and got a vinyl copy just so I could use it for, for my show, you know, because uh, you'd, think, you'd think in this age that most things are released digitally, but that was actually a gem of a recording from Jimmy Smith that we, we do not have in an MP3 format.
0: What are some recommendations for listeners? You know, maybe not as familiar. If you're going to sit down and, and like want to get into the essential Joy DeFrancesco Francesco uh, listening, mm-hmm. what what are your recommendations? Yeah,
4: that's a great question. Couple that stand out to me. He had a recording. I think it's 2007. It was kind of a they called it live. The authorized bootleg. It's a live recording, and he absolutely just plays notes like you wouldn't believe. Uh, they got a couple of burners on that one. I think he's got a take on Cherokee in that one. And I think that's an excellent album of his that I don't think I've heard many other places um, that I'm sure you can find out there. He he actually is on a Pat Martino live recording, uh, live at Yoshi's. I think it's actually under Pat Martino's name. That is absolutely one of my favorite. That's, that's a top 10 jazz recording for me personally. I've always loved that. He's had some recordings in the last couple of years where he's gone in some different directions and actually his most recent recording, the the name of it is is actually almost a little off-putting. It's called More Music was a 2021 release. It was almost just like here I'm putting more stuff out there for you. But the thing I love about it is he shares with another organist. He shares with a a guy named Lucas Brown who I believe is also another Philadelphia uh, guy and he shares some organ work with someone else. I mean, he is the organist, and yet he's willing to say, "Here, here, come sit in the seat with me," and I'm actually going to do some other stuff. And so you get, to, you kind of get to see a little bit more of of Jody's, you know, kind of greater realm of what he does these days there's a lot of stuff out there I, i'll be honest you can't really go wrong with any of it but if you want to get a good sample i would say there's a great place to start all
0: right excellent and then you host uh, jazz organic here on wgcb wednesday nights at 10 p.m uh, are you going to be doing anything special coming up
4: yeah i'm definitely going to dedicate next weekends or probably next wednesday's show uh to an hour of just the music of joey d and some storytelling. Uh, which I'll be honest, I feel a lot of pressure for. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit more, I'll definitely have more of a biographical uh, hour about Joey D uh, next week. We'll make sure to
0: tune in for that Wednesday at 10 p.m. right here on WDCB. Andy, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to talk with us.
4: Yeah, Gary, no problem. Thanks so much for calling.
0: That was Andy Schultz. He's the host of Jazz Organic, which is on Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. right here on WGCB. Joey DiFrancesco will be missed. He was 51 years old. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links to go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.